We're going to be reading from the book of Acts. If you all stand with me. Acts chapter 26, the second portion of chapter 26, 19 through 32. I'll be reading, we'll both be reading from the NIV. Verse 19. So then King Agrippa was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets say, our prophets and Moses would happen. That the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're going, you're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped this, his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man has done nothing and has not, is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment altogether now. Agrippa, Agrippa said, said to Festus, Festus this man, man could have been, been set, set free if he had, if he had not, not appealed to Caesar. Caesar. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. Uh, it's wonderful to share with you the word of God today, the second Sunday of the new year of 2021. We're in the second part of chapter 26 of the book of Acts in our ongoing study, and this leaves us only two more chapters. So, I mean, this is not a small feat, you guys. I don't know. I don't know if you, if, you, if you can kind of capture what a big deal this actually is. Uh, we will have gone together through one entire book in the last two year, almost two years now. For those of you who have been paying attention, you can confidently say that you really know the book of Acts, a very important record of our faith in the entire Bible. I mean, how important it is the formation of the church and the ongoing mission of God that continues on today. So whenever, like missionaries, we want to consult on how things were done back in those, di- those times, we look to the book of Acts. At this point, what we're at in our text is Paul's last time, at least on record, of sharing his testimony before an influential or powerful person. After King Agrippa, the next historical figure he must have shared the gospel to can be none other than Nero emperor of Rome during uh, 54 through 68 AD. And if you know anything about Nero, it is certain beyond reasonable doubt that Paul was killed shortly thereafter. This man was known to gather Christians, stuff their shirts with uh, wax, and then to prop them up on long poles and to light them on fire for his amusement. This was known as the Roman candle. As I shared with you last Sunday, Paul too used to be in darkness, much like the Jews who are hunting him down now to silence him, or worse, to kill him altogether. He too 
used to oppose the name of Jesus, cast vote for death of Christ followers, tried to make them blaspheme, and he was obsessed in persecuting the followers of the way. Since meeting Jesus on the way to Damascus, however, his life completely changed. He changed from the foremost persecutor of, to the chief advocate of the, of the faith for Christ, of, of, for the faith in, in Jesus Christ. The fire with which he was opposing the gospel, after full reversal, he is now being consumed in his desire to share the gospel. I mean, that's a huge change, right? And of course, he doesn't take credit for that change that he has undergone. undergone. Listen to what Paul says to the folks in Ephesus. If you go to the slide, please, uh, David. Ephesus 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is certainly the case for Paul. Paul cannot boast about his transformation because it was Jesus himself that showed himself to him so that he could change. Just how does a religious terrorist turn missionary of the very same movement that he used to persecute? The change that Paul undergoes is testimony to the fact that the person he meets with is, in fact, Jesus, the Lord Almighty. Jesus only had to appear to Paul one, one time. He didn't have to sit there and persuade him. He just told him once what, what to do, and Paul starts obeying right away. Paul, Paul has to ask, who are you? Because he, he doesn't know this bright light that appears to him, who, who the identity is. Who are you, Lord, he asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And right after that brief, very short introduction, Jesus tells Paul, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. Jesus can command immediate obedience from even the most stubborn opponent. All he had to say is, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Some of you may ask, why am I still disobedient? Or, or, or worse, I don't know if you've ever said this to yourself in the back of your mind, but why, why can't he make me obey? Have you guys ever thought that? I know that there were some, there were some young people that may think that because early in the faith, I might have thought that. The change that Paul undergoes initially, I want you to know, is not of personality. Paul's personality still pretty much remains intact. It's not even of his character. The change that Paul undergoes is of life trajectory. It had taken a 180-degree turn from aggression to submission, from rebellion to obedience, from darkness to light. I can tell you that I'm very familiar with that change. I have to undergo it myself. I can see, I can read, I can feel your heart where it's at. And, and you know deep down inside that you need to undergo that, that turn, that change. You know what it is? It is a turn from Satan's dominion to that of God's kingdom. I pose this question to you today. Did you meet the Lord? Do you know him personally? Or is he a vague idea, some religious idea? Someone reducible to a figure from the past who had taught some good things once upon a time. If that's your Jesus, you have not really met him yet. 
Because the vitality of your faith, of your life in faith, is sometimes determined by the authenticity of your encounter. Now, I'm not calling that everybody has to meet Jesus like Paul did. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. As I take down prayer requests, just this last house church meeting, I see it on your Facebook list, I was super encouraged to find that you guys, many of you, a majority of you are saying, you want to take your faith more seriously. I mean, I would hate to think that you come to church because your parents happen to be in the leadership of the KSC, and so just out of, like, courtesy to them. I mean, I want, I want you to have ownership of your own faith. I want you to have this desire burning inside of your heart that all this Jesus talk that everybody else is talking about, you want that to be part of your life, not just part of your life, central to your being. Because that's the only time where you get this all or nothing, you know? It is, it is a life and death matter, actually. We just don't know how deep this whole, what was it, the, the rabbit hole goes, right? Then once you go, once you go and follow Jesus in that way, he'll reveal to you incredible things. I want you to listen closely for those of you who have said you want to take your faith more seriously, you want to be more spiritual. Listen closely to them. This is the most compelling feature of Paul's apostleship. First, in order to authenticate if Paul really is an apostle or not, is whether he has been in fact sent by Jesus or not. I want you to know that while the other disciples, Peter and the others, they had eaten with Jesus, they had like shared life with him for at least three years during the time of his ministry. Paul was the one that he calls himself abnormally born because Paul meets Jesus long after he's ascended, after Jesus is ascended, right? So I don't know if you guys ever heard of this, uh, this terminology. I just came, came across it. It's like a imposter syndrome. You know, Paul, Paul had to question himself. Am I, am I really an apostle, right? Well, I'll be You'll be the judge when you read when you read the text when you read the, the text that's been recorded and read through the centuries past. Everybody will tell you, yeah, Paul was definitely an apostle. He was sent by none other than Jesus. The word apostle, you guys know, it's from the Greek apostello. It means sent one, right? Paul, uh, Jesus says, "I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles." This is Jesus speaking to Paul. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. While not everybody in the church can be an apostle, even before anyone can be sent like, like Peter was sent, right? We each are called to be disciples. If the place, if the space, if the organization is not creating disciples of Jesus Christ, that place or this, this body is no longer church. We will not be fulfilling the function of the church if we're not making disciples. And what is a disciple? Is anyone who is in the discipline of obedience, obeying God, obeying the leadership of, of, of the body of Christ. That is what disciple means. Sometimes, you know, when I was a guest speaking for other guest speaking engagements, and I want to ask the question, you know, how many of you call yourselves Christians? And you guys are like, they all like raise their hands real high. And then, like briefly, like a few seconds later, how many of you are disciples? And then like only like a few people in the front, they'll raise their hands, right? 
It's because we have this weird mentality that there's a two-tiered membership. The people that are like really in it are the disciples, and the rest of them are what? Consumers? Just uh, sitting way back as spectators? I'm a fan of Jesus, but not really a player in his his, uh, game, in his in the, in the active pursuit of, of, of his holiness? I don't know if that really works. The first thing that we notice in Paul's own testimony is that he immediately and very simply obeyed God. Did you, did you David, put the first slide for today's point? Immediate and simple obedience. If you're able to obey because in your mind you have no other calculations. You're not calculating what, what, do I, what, do I, what do I seek to gain from this. Then you know that you are in it for the Lord and nothing else. That's, that's what it is in the end. If you're able to say yes because your mind is saturated with the person of God, of Jesus Christ, then yeah, that will show you that you're a disciple. And if you're sent somewhere, like Peter was sent to Africa, perhaps, perhaps you were actually in the apostolic network, you know, uh, carrying on the mission of God. I can determine whether a person is a disciple material or not by the way that person obeys the Lord. The body of Christ is made up of members that move in harmony with, with the rest of the body, you know. You can't have the hand doing something on its own while the whole body is doing something else over there, right? You can't have the foot doing something on its own while the rest of the body is doing something else, right? Because the head of the body is none other than Jesus himself. I want you guys to make yourself count in this way. Thank you very much for reading the scripture because that function was very necessary in the liturgy, as we were doing it together, right? As our text begins today, Paul states that he was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. Paul's preaching is a direct result of obeying the command from Jesus. First to those in Damascus, and then those in Jerusalem and Judea, and then to the Gentiles. It's a trifold circle. It's it's like first to the immediate circle of people, same language, same culture, the people that are slightly outside of his comfort zone, and then all the way to those who are Gentiles, who are non-Jews. You may argue this. I mean, I've, I hear this argument. I used to hear this argument in my own mind before. Well, he had a direct vision from Jesus. Of course he's going to obey. If I had a vision like that, I would certainly obey right away. I mean, just, just like, you know, have you ever thought that to yourself? Of course Paul's going to be Paul because he had that amazing revelation from Jesus Christ. Those of you who may be saying that, I hear you. But for, for Paul, however, he was blinded by the light that he had encountered. He was rendered helpless for at least three days. He couldn't eat or drink anything. He had to walk sightless, guided by the hand of one of his traveling companions, and arrive at the house of Ananias, someone who he had not even met yet, and to receive healing prayer from him. If you demand an encounter from God before you get into the habit of of obeying obeying His will, you are, in a way, placing yourself above God. You know that attitude, you know, make me obey. That's that's basically what you're saying when you say, "I, I I need more evidence that it's you. 
It can be also an attempt that for an excuse in the back of your mind, well, I'm not obedient per se because I have not yet experienced God to my satisfaction. You want more of the supernatural experience before you start obeying. Well, let me tell you, there's a lot of room for danger for that. There's a lot of uh, spiritual things that are counterfeit things out there that will try to impose its, uh, its presence on you. An imposter imposing its uh, presence on you to make you experience things that are quite outside of the norm. Let me tell you, the Bible warns. Uh, why don't we display this? This is a, is a good warning for those of you who might be thinking, I need more experience of the heavenly gifts. Uh, next slide, David. Right there. Uh, Bible warns of people who fall away after having tasted the divine gifts. This is in Hebrew uh, 6, first part of 4, and then Hebrew 6, uh, 6, 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. There are many believers who, had, who never had encounters like Paul did. I didn't have an encounter like Paul did. I had an amazing experience of God. That's why I'm, I'm serving with fear and trembling, because to, ever, to whomever is revealed much, given much, much will be expected in return. There are people that never had encounters like that, but they're still obedient to the Word of God. They're still obedient to their parents. They're, obe- uh, they're still obedient to their pastors. They guard respect for authority, the authority through which the ministry of Christ and His love flourishes. People like these prove their usefulness not only in the church, but out in the world as well. When you're being obedient in the church, it is when your faith and your character and your goodness can be vouched for by the people in your, in your, in your circle, in your company. Your obedience displays who you believe in. If the quality of your belief, if, you, if your obedience is shoddy, you know, if you only obey when you feel like it, I can guarantee you that you're not, you're not really obeying Jesus. Not obeying Jesus. Some, some other feelings that you're being pulled by, but not the Lord Jesus Christ whom we love, who has saved us. Remember that your obedience is an expression of your belief. A lot of times people wonder, why, why aren't believers not believing people in the church is because our, our obedience sometimes fails to the point where they have to question, is it really Jesus that you say that you love, that, that you believe in, right? I want you to remember Jesus said to Thomas in, in the book of John, chapter 20, verse 29, when, when Thomas is like, I will not believe it's Jesus until I, until I verify with my, with my own eyes, until I stick my finger into the wounds. He says, Bless, this is Jesus telling Thomas, blessed are those have not seen and have believed none of us here have had a vision of jesus but you still believe him right nod your heads if you believe in jesus although you've never seen him with your eyes well blessed are you jesus said just know that a direct encounter from god can include difficult commands from him the lord jesus can demand from you anything anything including your very life. Special revelation from God is often commensurate or in proportion with the tasks that He hope that will be entrusted to you. This is a a very uh, well-understood principle from the Bible. 
as well as from my experience. Speaking from the Bible, the encounter from God are almost always God-initiated. He does not show up because you conjure him by invoking his name in some magical way. Remember, read how David used to, to ha- live in, in fellowship with God, except for that one time when he sinned against God, and he was kind of, temporarily he felt like he was banished. God, actually, he's always with you as you walk in obedience in him. As you're always with him, he's always communing with you. You don't call him out like he's distant. He's always, always with you. And speaking from experience, the encounters that we have with him are only as authentic as our hearts are sincere in our seeking him. I know when you guys get together during your house church meetings, sometimes you say it because it's like the right holy thing to say. I want my spiritual life to be, you know, to be more real. I want to get real with God. And, and man, I, I, I love to hear that. And I know sometimes you maybe put that because you want, you want to sound good in that way. But if you're really sincere about it, our God is not someone who would say, you know, who wouldn't, who wouldn't show up if you have that desire, who would not speak to you in your heart. And, you know, you can, you can hear him, actually, every time you read the Bible. You have to get into the position where you realize what you're reading here is the very words of God. And on that day when you open it up and you're reading that verse, and during a passage that you read, you're reading, you're going to notice a verse pop into your mind, into your heart, sinking in there, and you're really being comforted by those words. That is the living voice of God speaking to you directly in that moment. Don't you want more of that? Don't you want those things in your heart every day? Learn not just to read the words in the Bible, but learn to read, to hear His, his voice through, through the text. Do not blame God when you don't experience His presence, when you are not honoring God in the attitude of your heart and daily deeds. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I am perfect in this respect, in this regard. I have those days when my mind is far away too. And I'm only able to share this with you because, because my, my life reflects this. Not a perfect, I'm not a perfect son. I'm not Jesus Christ. But my desire is to follow him the best I can. And I want to, I want to be able to lead you guys along in my journey. This is a collective journey that we take on together so that we could get closer to the Lord Jesus. When God tells you to do easy things, be faithful in obeying Him. What is the resistance? I don't understand it. If you disobey, you will only distance yourself from the very light that illuminates your path. Simple things like turning on your, on your camera during Zoom, during worship service, because there's a meaning behind it. It's not just the leadership saying, hey, you got to do it, so you, you must comply. That's not what it is. You have to understand the spirit behind why we're asking you to do this. When you come on the camera, we're able to, to do something that we cannot do in physical presence. The reason why we're using the Zoom is because we want to be able to see each other and, and have that gladness that we are able to see each other because there will be a day, whether we want to or not, we won't be able to see each other. There will be a day like that. Right? Or, or like uh, not just the Zoom service, but taking the meetings seriously. Taking the leadership meetings, for example. Taking it seriously. If you factor in how each of your obedience 
in the involvement affects the whole, then you get a better idea of what church is. One person disobeying can actually create the negative energy that hinders the entire ministry. Let's not be in that position, is what I'm saying. Now, just what did Paul preach? This is Paul's words. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. You've heard me say that repentance is not a one-time thing, but it's like a daily thing. But there is one time, one time when you were compelled to surrender to Jesus and to turn from darkness to light. That was that initial moment of repentance, a definitive moment of your rebirth. You were born again during that time. You said one day, you were sick of the way you were living, and you said, you know, I am tired of the way I am right now. I want some radical change. Lord, take me. You had that moment. That was your rebirth. But you did that like, let's say, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I started coming to church 20 years ago. I did that. If my deeds fail to show that this, this is a fact today, I have to ask myself naturally, did I really repent? Did I turn to Jesus or some other thing? Because Jesus commands that kind of continuity. He says, abide in me, right? Did I really turn to God? Am I really born again? I have to ask those things if I don't show it in my life. If I don't show it within, within my deeds. If I'm still being the selfish person that I used to be before Christ, I have to ask myself, what's going on here in this, in this picture? But as long as you are here, ESC and NBC, I want none of you to need to do that because your obedience will demonstrate your repentance. Your obedience is showing, it's demonstrating your repentance and it's showing your own obedience to God is your observable assurance of your salvation and the source of your gratitude and satisfaction in Him. If you're able to do this, you don't have to question, you don't have to struggle in that way with your faith because you will always have the assurance because of your heart of contentment while you're obeying, you feel the contentment that God gives you. Maybe, I, I, I really want that to be the case for us at NBC, that you'll feel it, that it will be like a tangible thing. And better yet, even though you feel nothing, that you'll still be able to do it because that's how secure your faith is. Oh my gosh. I've seen some brothers and sisters that are like that, that in spite of a, a lot of difficulties and challenges that invite themselves into their lives, they don't budge an inch. When it comes to their loyalty to Jesus, they still have it. There's nothing more encouraging than that when you see a brother or sister that way. If you are disobedient, of course, you have to address the issue of whether you are talking about Jesus Christ that you have repented to, or if it was your buddy Jesus that you met in middle school. Jesus, if you repented to Jesus Christ, your, your repentance has to be one that counts. When Jesus is the Lord of your life, it has to show. It shows. I mean, you can't hide it. You can't be like a covert secret Christian unless, of course, you're like in North Korea or something. Even if you're in North Korea and you're like a secret Christian, to the other Christians, you're like underground reading Bibles, you know, with, the, with your neck sticking out. Even if you get caught with the Bible, I mean, the... The penalty in that country is just is really, really severe, right? I mean, then you really don't have to question or ask, am I, really, am I really in it for Jesus or me, right? It is your deeds that demonstrate your repentance. If you really are a Christian, and if you have made a commitment to His church, if you are His church, then that's not something that can be hidden, brothers and sisters. It has to, it will show even if you try to hide. You know how Jesus says, uh, 
do your good deeds in secret, right? You do your good deeds in secret for a long enough time. We could do it for 10 years, but it will somehow leak out and people will say, yeah, that person's been doing that for 10 years, right? That's the best way, where you don't do it for display, but you do it because you love, you love the Lord. You love God. And this is not something that has changed since the Old Testament times. Abraham, for example, he lived, he lived according to God's will. When God asked him to sacrifice Isaac, I mean, do you know how old they were when they got Isaac? Like Abraham was like 100-something and Sarah was like 90. They were really old. And this one and only child, one and only son between him and Sarah, God says, give him to me now. You know, I want you to offer him up in the Mount Moriah. Abraham did not wait three days. He did not hesitate. The very next day, he saddled a donkey and he told his son, hey, let's go for a little trip, son. Let's go up to him. Let's go hiking, you know. He passed that test with, uh, with the sincerity of his faith, with flying colors. Don't you want to do that? Don't you want to pass that, those little tests that God sometimes gives us? Abraham gave an offering of tent as an offering to uh, Melchizedek after he rescues his nephew Lot long before it was ever instituted as a law. Some people, like they're teaching, they're teaching, is it, should we tithe or not now that, you know, we're in the New Testament times in the church days. It has it's nothing to do with the law. Giving, giving back to God is not, has nothing to do with the law. It's, it's something you do because you just love God. You have a confession to make that everything that you're able to do in this life is because God provided for us. These bright deeds of Abraham shine as an ongoing relationship of, relationship of, of the cre creature towards the creator, the worship and the love of God. The Old Testament records uh, and the anticipation of a Savior, it becomes, it becomes fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ shows his love for his Father through his obedience, and, uh, and Paul's message of light is exactly just that. That's what it is. The message of light is Jesus Christ. That's the second point of today's teaching message. The first one is, what was the first one? Immediate, simple obedience. Paul was able to Demonstrate his apostleship. He's an authentic apostle and a disciple of Jesus by obedience. And the message that he had, actually, so, so his, his attitude and his action preceded his message. Message is none other than Jesus Christ. He is consistent in his actions and the message that he bore. Paul says that everything he preaches is nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses have been saying. So it is not biblical, it's not extra biblical, it does not, it's not new revelation. It's the same thing. And the message of light is none other than Jesus Christ himself who came to his own people to suffer insult and injury and gave up his life on the cross only to rise from the dead three days later, just as foretold. The disciples of Jesus are committed to him as, as the living Lord who directs our paths even today. He's alive right now, directing our past today. Every time we have to make a life decision about something, we consult God first. And He will answer in some ways. And that is when we can take the next step. We don't just, you know, I mean, we make all the plans, but you know, what does the, the proverb say? We may make the plans, but it is the Lord who, who, who carries out the steps. And uh, uh, to be sure, the claims that the uh, 
that Paul makes, Paul is making some pretty extraordinary claims in front of this King Agrippa, but Paul himself is a pretty compelling evidence. Unless it was true, absolutely true, who would be willing to be in prison for two plus years in chains for something that was completely false? Either you are absolutely committed to the truth and the message, or you're kind of crazy, right? Right? Festus is listening to Paul very patiently and finally breaks his silence and says, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. So this Roman procurator is listening to Paul going, this guy's crazy, you know. Of course, there's no way that he's understanding what Paul is talking about because what Paul is preaching is a simple truth, but it is also a deep truth that requires some background knowledge. Because the Roman procurator is not going to know the the Jewish faith background like King Agrippa does. When Paul preaches to demonstrate repentance by deeds, this is exactly what John the Baptist was preaching before Jesus arrived to the scene. If you will show the uh, verses, um, David. In John chapter 3, verse, it's really tiny, so you might not be able to read it, but I'll read it for you. Uh, chapter 3, 7 through 9. This is before Jesus comes to the scene. Uh, the prophetic figure before Jesus' arrival was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, was he was, uh, he was offering the repentance, um, baptism of, of water, baptism of water, which is cleansing, and um, people were coming out. You know, left and right, they were coming out and they wanted to be baptized by him. John said to the crowds, I mean, and this is how John treats them. The people are coming to, to, get, to receive the baptism. And listen to what he says, it's crazy. John said to the crowds coming out to, ba- to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. <laughs> it's like you snakes, you know. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit then in keeping with repentance And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Same message that John the Baptist preached, that uh, Apostle Paul is preaching right now. Demonstrate your repentance by your deeds. Let your life show that Jesus is really your Lord. Let the attitude of your heart and the speech that you say demonstrate that Jesus is your Lord. Now, the message prior to Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the dead remains the same. Repent, repent, repent. Repent unto fruitfulness. Demonstrate your repentance by your deeds. I can't figure out where we get this idea that we can proclaim a faith but not have our lives show for it at all. You know what that's called? There's a technical term for that. Nominalism. Those of you who are with me, say it. Repeat after me. Nominalism. You guys know what that means? It means we call ourselves Christian, but we're not. We're only calling ourselves Christian. I pray, brothers and sisters, that there'll be no nominal Christians in our church. At least not in the ESC, right? How do you take this teaching when uh, Jesus says, this is what Jesus says, right? 
This is from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 20. It says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the, the holy ones, right? They were the ones that were living a moral standard that was so high that they were able to look down upon the, the temp, uh, tax collectors and the prostitutes, right? But Jesus is saying, your righteousness has to surpass that of theirs. How do you take this teaching? Doesn't it feel like God is making it tough for you to be found in heaven? But no, this is the verse that's referring to himself. They are not the standard of righteousness. Jesus is the standard of righteousness by which you will be found in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, I could not get into heaven by my own actions, by my righteousness. It is Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that warrants me to get into heaven, right? But if I have a trust in a Lord like that, then it's going to show. It's going to show. The life will change. In the kingdom of heaven, guess who is king? Jesus is king. Amen? And we are his subjects when we obey him. The message of light then is that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would suffer and would be the first to rise from the dead. Therefore, demonstrate your repentance with deeds. If we really believe that he is the firstborn from the ri of rising, of the, you know, rising from the dead, and if we really believe that we, we share in that same destiny of eternal life in the bodily resurrection. I mean, you know, sometimes we meet, me and my pastor friends, we get together and we talk about what heaven will be like. We'll have bodies. We'll actually have bodies. And guess what? We're not going to be like some ethereal disembodied figures like floating around space. We're going to actually be able to feast and eat. How many of you enjoy eating? We're going to be able to eat together in heaven in eternal life with those we love. Man, <laughs> I mean, that's, if we really believe that, it would, it would show. It would show in our lives here now. Do not hide behind a fake repentance, in other words. For those who have a background on what Paul is talking about, a great many were trying to kill him, could not accept the message because what, what he was confronting is their fakeness. Paul was confronting their fakeness, their darkness. Uh, they object to the uh, age-old prophetic call to repent. Back when the prophets were saying, repent towards God, they were trying to kill them too. And the proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah, they object to that too. They don't want to call Jesus their Lord. And the message of the resurrection even, they object against that. I mean, the Pharisees, they champion for, the, for that cause. In many respects, Paul's Jewish opponents are in their faith, not even Jews at all. What made Jewish people Jewish is having those things and keeping that. But by the time Paul arrives at the scene, they're all attacking Paul, revealing that they're not Jewish people at all. Romans 2 says, A man is not a Jew because he is one outwardly. It's not circumcision that makes you a Jewish person. It's not circumcision, outward circumcision, physical. No, a man is a Jew because he is one inwardly. The circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise does not come from men, but from God. Have you ever had uh, serving the church and nobody really showed the appreciation for your service? And so you were like, oh man, you know, I did that, but nobody's, nobody is, what a thankless thing that I'm doing here. Have you ever felt that way? 
Because if you are, you're in good company. Because you know who's commending you while you're doing those things? Nobody's thanking you. When, when you're doing your good deeds in secret, the person who's com- commending you is not the other people, your peers, it's God. God recognizes you and your heart and your intention because if they're pure, you will not go unnoticed by the Lord Almighty. Now for Festus and the many uh, Gentiles of Roman and the Greek background, the idea that the Son of God dies on the cross is entirely a ridiculous message. How many of you know some names of Greek gods? Name a couple of gods, Greek gods. Can you just shout it out? Don't be shy. Poseidon from the ocean. That's, I think, a, a, a Roman god. Zeus. Right? Like These are all like Roman, Roman and Greek gods. And uh, um, they were powerful. They were not supposed to show the frailty. I mean, if they were... <laughs> For the Son of God to come to their own people and die by it in their hands, to them that's like a totally opposite message of what God, what divinity is supposed to be. Greek and Roman gods were made in the likeness of people with exaggerated features of, of our power. In the case of Jesus, however, the very being and the source of ultimate power comes down to live among his very people and is mistreated to the point of dying on the cross. Complete inversion of our expectations. Everybody wants to get to the top somehow. We want to reach reach a divine state. We want to become demigods of this world. But you know, God himself shows, no, that's not the point. That's not the the point why you're alive today. I want to show you the, the most excellent way. Boom. Jesus comes down from heaven and shows love what that looks like. He shows us what love looks like. And the treasure that you carry, once you know that love, you will want eternal life. Because that's how, how much it's worth. It will last forever. So when Festus reacts to Paul as if he's out of mind, it's, it's an understandable reaction. You're out of your mind. It's totally understandable. But Paul responds, I am not insane, most, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. I want you guys to remember this. There are some people out there that insist that you have to be irrational to have faith. Don't buy into that. Your faith is reasonable. That is why it's encoded into text. Even though there are many stories that in the Bible we don't understand, the reason why it's that way is because God is encouraging us to think. Think deeply about this thing so that we would come to an awakening of His reality. Faith is actually what gives birth to reason. It's not the other way around. Paul calls on Agrippa's attention because, you know, it's useless talking to this Roman guy, right? The king, the king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him, right? Now, this is something that, if you go to the next slide, there's a little diagram that I made. David. Uh, Next slide. Okay, so uh, there's a Dr. Ralph Winters who's a professor, professor of missiology. He, he, he was talking about uh, the three methods of, uh, three, three, three stages of evangelism. 
and one is E1, the second larger ring is E2, the, large, the third one is E3. And what E1 is, is Jerusalem mission. It's when you're preaching the gospel to your own culture in your own language. So me, as a pastor, being sent to a Korean church, because I'm Korean, it would be E1, E1 evangelism. But then there are those who are of the similar language, not exactly the same language, but a different culture. That would be like E2. So uh, maybe like from Seoul to Jeju-do or something. You know, they speak same Korean, but it's a little bit different. The culture is a little different. And then E3 is where it's the uttermost parts of the world, different languages and different cultures. So when Paul goes to Ephesus, when Paul goes to the Greeks, when Paul is uh, dealing with the Romans, these are Gentiles. They're not Samaritans. Samaritans would be like, uh, you know, they sort of understand each other. For Paul, it turns out, okay, so, so basically it's supposed to be easiest. When it's E1, when it's your own people, evangelism is supposed to be easiest because you're, you're in the same channel of culture, you're speaking the same language. But for Paul, it's the, it's the opposite. He sees the most success with the E3 uh, evangelism with the Gentiles when he goes to Ephesus, when he goes to, to Rome even. Like all these people are more open to him while his own people in the E1, the Jews want to kill him. And Agrippa is sort of kind of in the E2. Like he, Agrippa is actually not entirely Jewish. He's an Edomian. So he's more like a Samaritan, not a full-blooded Jew. Uh, so, you know, Paul, Paul says to him, King Agrippa, do you, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. I mean, you have to read it that way, because when you're reading it, Paul wants so badly, he wants it so badly in his gut to like, to, for the king to, to know the gospel, to know, to know God. I mean, if you know the prophets, if you believe in the prophets, you, got, you have to understand this message. You have to capture it. But I want you to remember, Agrippa is someone who knows the Jewish faith to the point that, that he has been granted the power to appoint high priests. He had full temple access. But how does Agrippa answer Paul? Does he say, why sure, Paul, I believe in the prophets, you old chap. Does he do that? No. He's in fact in front of the Roman procurator who just called Paul insane. So I don't know if he's saving face or not. Instead of continuing in what could have been at least an exploratory conversation. Let's talk about this further, Paul. I mean, they could have gone a little further. He just cuts Paul short. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be Christian? Man, I mean, it's a, it's a terrible waste of an opportunity because this king, I mean, he could have had a chance to meet the Lord Jesus. And uh, <laughs> just imagine if he met the, the Lord Jesus, how Jerusalem would change. Imagine, imagine. But uh, those are quick and easy ways that we think as men, God has different plans. If I was a... Uh, a bit more crass with the expression. It's like, it's like he's saying to Paul, you think you can tag me and bag me as one of yours here in one, just one sitting? King Agrippa does not, does not take the bait. He's not, you know, the fish is gone. It's the, the fish was not caught by that particular, particular uh, fishing stick. But if Paul is trying, why is he trying so hard? Because for him, it took one sitting, and he knows deep inside that Agrippa has heard the gospel before. It wasn't the first time for Agrippa to hear the gospel. 
It's the first time hearing it from Paul. But he knew Christians. Agrippa knew Christians. He knew the customs of the Christians. They, he knew what they believed in. I think that's why Agrippa is answering, do you think you, you could convert me? To his detriment. It's, it's his loss, right? In all likelihood, it was not the first time of him hearing that Jesus is the culmination of all ancient Jewish hopes. But what do people do? People think that we have all the time in the world to continue to reject him at their own peril. At their own peril. So just to review, the first point of the message is emphasizing obedience within the church, within our lives, obeying the Lord, obeying the word of God, obeying the authority that's instituted within the church because it's for, for you, not against you. Paul obeyed Jesus because it finally clicked for Paul. Who was, in fact, commanding the lead? If you knew in your heart, without a shred of doubt, that Jesus is commanding this church, wouldn't you just obey? Wouldn't you just say, yeah, I'll do it. I love the Lord. I want, I want to please Him. So even if it doesn't sit right with me entirely, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, on my faith in Christ, I will obey you. I pray that for each and every one of you, without exception, that you too will have Jesus as a master of your life and your destiny. You will not be disappointed. Secondly, the message, the message of light is Jesus himself. Jesus, Jesus is the message. Remember, Jesus was Logos. He was the principle and the rationale by which everything is made. Like whenever you look at the beautiful nature and you look at the intricate things that go into nature, even like you know, in botany, when you look at flowers and, and how, they, how they're all designed by God, you know what went into those things? It's love, His love. The rationale by which everything is made around us is God's love. And that love, that logos is Jesus who has worn the, f- the flesh of mankind and lived among us and showed us what the people bearing His image are supposed to look like. How we're supposed to live out our lives as His people. Who He is, what He did, and what He continues to do, that's the message of light. You could be going through a very dark tunnel, but at the end of the tunnel, if Jesus is standing there, that's the brightest light you can ever have access to at any any given moment. Salvation is entirely in the person of Jesus Christ. In the presence of true light, there can be no darkness. Amen? The last point that I want to impress upon you is this. This is where we have some... We need, to, we, need to, we need to really dig deep into this. Why is this? Why is this? It's so frustrating. Paul is, a, uh, Paul is saying, I, I wish you were, you were me right now. Because even though he's chained, he's been, he's been in prison for two years. Everybody who's listening to me, I, I want nothing more than for you to be what I am, which is to be Christian. Right? We live our lives sometimes as if we live only for this, for this life. And that's why, that's why when the world looks at us, they're like, God, what a bunch of sorry people. But if we really live like we're living for eternal life, if we're l- living for the posterity, 
of your, of your children. I'm looking at you, you, Chris. I'm not looking at just you, but I know that one day you're going to be a daddy. You're going to have little children. And then some time passes, they're going to have children. So you're now a granddaddy, right? <laughs> you know, fast forward a little bit, right? Great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather. We're looking at into the future, ad infinitum, into eternity. That's how God thinks, because he is not bound by the, the time here. He's in a timeless, timeless, I don't know, I, don't even, I can't even call it space, because he invented space. He created space. He's, he's somewhere entirely different. That's how holy God is. That's who we serve, and that is our destiny. That's Jesus. That is, that is our ultimate value. When we have received the gospel, when we receive Jesus, that's what we have. And we wonder to ourselves, why do we live such st- substandard sorry lives? You know? Paul is in chains right now, having been in prison for at least two years in Caesarea. And he can say boldly, I wish that not only you, king, but everyone with, within an earshot of my speech to become Christ's people. Many Christians have not tapped into the potential privilege, but the positional privilege of becoming a child of God. We have, not, we have not sat there to dwell upon that. I'm a child of God? Really? We have not thought about it. What does it mean to be a child of God? Man, the possibilities are totally endless. It's like we have this huge gift that is still wrapped up. We have not even cared to open it yet. Open it yet. And we still want more gifts. Can you give me a blessing this way and that way? And <laughs> we were given the, mo- the greatest of all gifts and we're still kind of, we haven't, we haven't even unpacked it yet. From our study of, of Acts alone, we find that to know Jesus is to turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and to receive forgiveness of sins. And not only that, but to find a place among those who are being cleansed by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter, are you back there? Uh, were you able to shower when you were in uh, Africa? Okay. Each time when you shower, did it feel good? It was amazing, right? When you're being cleansed by faith in Jesus Christ, it's those parts that you cannot access with water and soap. It's part of your being that cannot be cleansed that God cleanses you with. He will use all kinds of channels. He could use, you know, trials. He could use challenges that are most unwelcome. He could use pain. He could use those things. But afterwards, if, you're, if you come out cleaner on the other side, wouldn't you go through it? If he, was, if, if he was to tell you there's a fire in front of you, but you believe me, don't you? You trust me, don't you? Why don't you walk through it? And you walk through it, and all this crap that you had like clung to you, all these demons that are like leeching on you, they all, they all die. They all die, and they're like pulverized into ashes, and you come out to the other side lighter. Wouldn't you go through that fire? He's cleansing us. The faith in Jesus Christ is one that cleanses, and the ultimate value is find, found in Him. We have not tapped into it yet, not enough. We, redu- we have reduced our existence as believers to just a series of do-to-dos and, you know, uh, little programs here and there. But man, it's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. And, and uh, I wish I could just make a point to, to convey it to you in, a, in, in one session, but I can't. It has to be unpacked little by little. It has to be unpacked little by little. So, so it makes part, makes, uh, it makes its way into, it sinks deep into your being so that after this mo- moment forward, you go, hot diggity, I want, <laughs> I, want, I want me a little bit of that. I want that in my life. 
I want, my, I want that in my life with regularity, consistency. In Christ, you are granted eternal life and therefore eternal significance. You know all those people that are out in Hollywood and they have their moment, you know? I mean, even the, the most cherished stars, they, they think that they're immortal. People, we think that, we look in the history of the, of the, of the cinema and all that, and we look at the, the, you know, they're really famous. I mean, okay, I'm going to use one name, Elvis. Elvis is like a god in America, you know, really. He's dead. He's dead. He's, he's gone. Eternal significance means that in light of what God did for us, in eternity, the life that is promised to us, we matter. We matter. We matter even after we pass away. All those people, all those Christians that have died through the coronavirus, they will be risen again, and they will matter to God even then. Jesus has affirmed the importance of your unique soul, your identity, and your potential by dying on the cross for us. By dying on the cross for us. You know what I have heard preached once, and I think this is true. Even if there was only one person on earth, whether it's you or me, he would have died for that one person. Do you believe this? This is the Lord who wants to be known to you, who already knows you better than you know yourself. There's no use in hiding, folks. We know who you are. Amen? Are you also secure enough in your, in your belief that with every fiber of your being, you wish that the people around you would be who you are? would be what you are. That's the way it should be. Don't carry the Christianity like, I'm sorry, but I'm Christian, like apologetically like that. No, no, I am a Christian. I want you to become what I am. I want you to become what I am. We have to have that certainty. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to convince anybody. Paul was in chains in prison for two years plus for this chance to address King Agrippa and then finally to be on his way to Rome to preach in front of a beast of a man only to be killed. A glorious martyrdom that glorified Jesus forever. A child of God, a follower of Jesus, a people of the way, that's what we are. Allow me to close in prayer so that you would know the person of our faith. Our faith has a direct object. We, we trust Jesus. I don't trust my learning. I don't trust my strength. I don't trust my health. Those are all very unstable things. But there's something absolute and un- immovable about the person of Jesus Christ. And he is who I trust today and forever. And we can show this by demonstrating our repentance through our deeds. Man, what a wonderful way to communicate the deepest of our convictions. Let us pray. Dear Lord, uh, help me. Help us, the, mem- uh, the members of ESC here, to come to a renewal in our spirit, Lord. Every single one of us. Grant us the courage to believe like Paul did, even when we are lacking the revelation like, like he had. And uh, we know that you're still showing yourself to us 
in diverse ways. We ask that uh, whenever we get together as house church, that you would make this revelation known and that, that our, our mouth cannot be silenced, that we will have to share excitedly about your reality. There are so many things around the world that are so alluring, so many things that, that command our attention. But Lord, when you, are, when you are at the center of our conversation, when you are at the center of our lives, when you and what you do in us is the reason for our being alive, uh, we ask that there will be a, a whole different excitement around our conversation. That we would, Lord, all those other things of the world would be muted necessarily. That it wouldn't be, it wouldn't, it would, re, it would be reduced to just background static. Because, Lord, uh, your beautiful voice and uh, what you've done in our lives and what you continue to do with us as you redeem us every day, as you continue to forgive us and you cleanse us through your fire. We want to be more and more like you. We want to demonstrate our allegiance to you by our deeds and our actions. We want to catch that fire that burns eternally in our hearts. Lord, may we be that light. May we, may we be the city on a hill that cannot be hidden, Lord. You have called us light of the world. even if it is to burn like Roman candles. We ask that you would lift us up for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray this thing. Amen. Now at this time we have a time of uh, praise and response.